what article is this? Summarize it's that. about uh, a bunch of divinity re- students that can't get employed for obvious reasons. Well, because they uh, don't believe in God. Uh, that's the first thing. Yeah, that that's maybe one of the issues with them being divinity students is they're agnostic. And then they make their money as consultants for corporations to help them ritualize and add more oh. meaning into their corporate environments. Which it has to be one of the most like I like I don't think out of the most fevered dreams of Kafka could he have come up with something as horrifying as that. It's pretty bad. Like you're um, taking see, the most sacred. Similar, th- we did a very similar article on the one we did without Revan about like the like oh, the, technomonks. Te- technomonks. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 That one was also exceptionally well done. And that that one was just like. It, it, yeah, the Technomonks, it's them taking religious practices and then, like, left-brainifying them and just sucking them up for all their utility. At least they didn't originally believe in this stuff. Like, at least they're not betraying yeah. it. I view the Divinity as, like, the far... Or the Divinity students as the far greater sinners in that one. Mm-hmm. Technomonks, the, that was a good the, one. The traitors are the greatest sinners, right? That's true. Yeah. Nine Circle, reserved for them. Yeah. Oh. Reserved for Divinity students and advising CEOs on how to conduct business meetings. Yeah. Move aside, Judas. That's the fourth that's in the fourth head of Satan. With a cup of latte forever beyond their reach. A cup of latte and they're 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 frantically trying to hold on to Rob Bell as it's gonna say them, and it's, it's just not <laughs> And uh in addition to being chewed on by by Satan, they they're realizing that they may have accidentally deleted their entire uh, documents folder off with their with their almost completed thesis, but it keeps like like popping up for a second and vanishing again. So there's internal torment, not knowing whether or not the file is safe. Awesome. No. Okay, we should get on this. I should. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. I'm Seth. And here we are on a lovely Sunday evening, all enjoying it. Here in D.C., we finally started to get fall. So, like, in the mornings, it's 55 degrees, and it's just, it's it's quite lovely finally seeing the death of summer, as I prophesied in our previous episode. Uh, but with fall comes fall drinks. Uh, so, Steven. What are we drinking right now? Ah, see, in keeping with sort of the fall spirits, uh, apple cider is one thing. Uh, hard cider is another. Honey wine made out of cider. That is a whole new level. And so this is, uh, I finished bottling the last of my mead that had a uh, apple cider base. And I'm, uh, I'm, I gotta say, I'm pretty happy with it. So I'm uh, having a bit of mead. Technically, it's a sizer given that it's a uh, uh, apple cider base. But, you know, it's tomato, tomato. Well played. That's amazing. I, man, you knocked wow. it out of the park there. Ah, thank you. Sam, how about you? Oh, man. I, I feel so bad. This is not a fall drink. It's more of a summer drink, but it's just more of a basic drink. I'm having a grapefruit white claw seltzer. But I have Aww. one in my... Sam, you base... I know. But I, I have a bunch of these in our fridge, and we need to get them drank because it's going to get they chilly here and you can't drink it but if you take a white claw and put it over ice it's actually not that bad it's kind of refreshing so i used to drink these like on the porch with my dad or whatever um so i don't know the, actually the reason that he likes white claw is a tangent but it, it, he he my dad fell in love with white claw before it was like the super basic party drink and it was because for a new year's re- resolution one time he gave up alcohol and started drinking like fancy seltzers 
not hard times. And then he realized that wasn't cutting it. So then he started drinking hard seltzer, which undid the <laughs> undid the resolution. But then he discovered White Claw. And yeah. So anyway, Fair enough. I, I, I enjoy it. It's nice. It's refreshing. It's not fall at all. And it's basic. Well played. Uh, as for myself, I'm also in the fall theme with some uh, Trader Joe's Fall Harvest Blend uh, Tea, which is excellent, very spicy, has all the lovely notes of folly flavors, and it's quite delicious indeed. Uh, but speaking of things being delicious, you know what's not delicious? Egoism. Have you ever tried to eat it? It's absolutely d- disgusting. It's dry, it fills you up, but then in the end, it just leaves you empty. And that is... Ideas Have Consequences, Chapter 4, Egoism in Work and Art. We'll be doing two chapters this week, so I will just hop right into it. Richard Weaver's concern in this chapter is egoism and specifically its effect on art, which he's, you know, he's told us that that's important. It's part of how we build and share our unifying dream, you know, the endless repetitions of the Greeks of their mythology in their buildings and all around them was one of the things that helped keep them together. So when art starts to fragment, you start having a problem. And one of the chief causes of this fragmentation of art and consequently also the breakdown of culture, the breakdown of the unifying dream is egoism. And egoism, the focus on the self, has the sin of withdrawal. By choosing your own personal advantage, your own personal thoughts, you withdraw not just, or perhaps not physically from the world, but from the spiritual community where people are united by the unsentimental sentiment, the unifying dream that is necessary to backdrop a civilization. And he accounts for this egoism, which is ignorance, uh, in that it's an overconsideration of oneself, of failing to realize your place in relationship to others, to the world, to the dream, and, and to God. And he places this back in a philosophical split on the purpose of knowledge between the scholastics, the thinkers, the doctors of the medieval era, where their massive knowledge results in humility because they understand themselves in relationship to God and the world. The more knowledge they have, the more that they understand their place in it, as opposed to Bacon's theory of knowledge, which he sees as uh, knowledge is power mode, where knowledge becomes domination. And so the pursuers, the heirs of Bacon, make the error of confusing the, the manipulation of the material world with wisdom. And for a long, extended, full book on this, or well, not long, for a short, quite good book on this, I would say, uh, see Abolition of Man. This egoism, after it was introduced, manifested in art. So he sees art, artistry, good art, is a kind of art that has an ideal that it tries to manifest into reality. It, it has a conception of something behind the material world around it. And this goes back to his conversation about nominalism, that there are ideals that exist in the mind of God. And that is when an artist is working on creating a piece. Time isn't an issue and work is akin to prayer. It's fidelity to the truth of the ideal that you are trying to manifest and capture in your artistic piece. Uh, But this has gone away, he says, that this egoism has pervaded all all spheres, uh, especially in the market, in capitalism. He has a dislike for traders, as we've already noted, because in this, in that world, there's a use for everything. There's utility. The market is a place for self-serving egoists to butt up against each other and fight it out to try and get the most advantages. Work never becomes acting with responsibility on the authority of God granted to you, but instead it's attempting to get as much from other people as possible while avoiding the demands of others. Uh, And he says, 
quote, um, work is not to be performed as ever in my great taskmaster's eye, but for my neighbor whom I despise, end quote. So that spirit in the market has also come into art, he, he, he believes. And it has driven a wedge in between art and nature, that is reality. So he catalogs this in three different areas. Uh, in literature, he sees a rise of self-consciousness, which always ends in, you know, introspection, melancholy, sadness, and despair. In, in art, he sees it in impressionism, where it brings nominalism into painting, where it's a repudiation of form, that there's no form that exists prior to things to aspire to. Instead, things only exist inside the minds of men. And so it's natural to paint simply what you perceive or what you upon self-reflection perceive. And that's the only truth that there is. There's a focus on contingency and context over the universal ideal of, of things in art. And then in music, which I'm sure we'll talk about quite a bit, he sees composers going down a dark path for a long time, basically since Bach, and, and turning towards uh, climaxes, personal flourishes, bizarre, unsettling music. Uh, he says that music goes from being architectural to thematic to textural. The ultimate expression of this textural music, which he hates, is jazz. And I know we all have thoughts about this, but in his own words, quote, Jazz, by formally repudiating restraint by intellect and by expressing contempt and hostility towards our traditional society and mores, has destroyed this equilibrium. That destruction is a triumph of grotesque, even hysterical, emotion over propriety and reasonableness. Jazz often sounds as if in a rage to divest itself of anything that suggests structure or confinement. It is understandable, therefore, that jazz should have great appeal to civilization's fifth column, to the barbarians within the gates. Boo. <laughs> Sam has strong opinions. Um, He's wrong. I mean, he objectively is wrong here. Uh, oh no, I lost my my second. Doesn't matter. Here. He's wrong. He, he, yeah, I mean, we can just keep booing him until you find this place. It's fair. Oh, uh, uh, right, right, right. Quote: The fact that the subjects of jazz, insofar as it may be said to have subjects, are grossly sexual or farcy or farcical. Subjects of love without aesthetic distance and subjects of comedy without law of proportion shows how the soul of modern man craves orgiastic disorder. So anyway, he's not a big fan of jazz, uh, but we're not a big fan of him not being a big fan of jazz. Uh, but then briefly, just to uh, close out this chapter, he just sort of takes a look at these broad sweeps that he sees in various artistic forms and says, this is all very bad. It's showing a bad thematic direction that we're heading. And he says... Quote, the broad character of the movements we have been following represents a psychic urge to collapse all order, a technical effort to get something without tolerating a medium, which is but another exhibition of the passion for immediacy. Whether we regard the excesses of literary romanticism or the syncopation of jazz or impressionism in painting, the story is the same. We witness attempts often ingenious and powerful to get form without consenting to form, and then we see the beginnings of a reaction in symbolism and abstract art. End quote. Uh, and I will leave it there and pass it off to Stephen for chapter five, the great stere stereopticon. Indeed. Thank you, Brevin. So I mentioned that the third chapter back in our last episode, that the third chapter may very well be the master and his emissary revisited. And though certainly Weaver keeps riffing on McGillchrist or maybe the other way around. Uh, and indeed, uh, even as Brevin was talking about his summary, I kept thinking, oh, left brain. Oh, right brain. Uh, but in chapter five, Weaver opens with a question that reminds one of the last chapter of After Virtue. Uh, recall that McIntyre was troubled in that we have no common narrative or set of values remaining in which to conduct conversations about ethics. Likewise, Weaver notes that social disintegration, that the social disintegration he has been lamenting in the previous pages, leads to a massive problem. 
namely, quote, how to persuade to communal activity people who no longer have the same ideas about the most fundamental things, end quote. When a society all has a shared belief, dissent is not a noble distinction, but, quote, a sort of excommunication, end quote. Value judgments become impossible when the ego asserts itself over the society. There can be no reconciliation between the individual will and authority. Recall that Weaver has already mentioned multiple times that, if every man is king, no one is beholden to any other. What is worse, in this sort of society, those tasked with fixing the problem, quote, are not interested in saving souls, but they are interested in preserving a minimum of organization, uh, for upon that depends their posts and their incomes, end quote. Alas, the solution adopted by said leaders was to replace religion with education, supposing it would be just as effective in inculcating a set of social values. Of course, let's not go too far and say you can only have one, but similar to the cringe-inducing scientists proclaiming science has eliminated the need for philosophy, so is stating that one can merely give a student a set of facts and produce a moral citizen. This brings to mind C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, but perhaps more on that later. The educational apparatus brought about to accomplish this task formed what Weaver terms the Great Stereopticon. The primary function of this apparatus is, quote, to project selected pictures of life in the hope that what is seen will be imitated, end quote. In essence, it is to train a set of responses via the inculcation of a set of images and sounds. This provides modern society with a new cosmology, different only in content from the cosmology of the medieval scientists, no less pervasive, no less encompassing, but infinitely more hollow. Eerily, he says this apparatus is composed of three main components, the press, the motion picture, and the radio. If Weaver is correct in his postulating of this construct, the Leviathan has indeed only grown. His first examination is on the newspaper, spawn of this machine. To prevent rejoinder, he immediately asks the question, quote, has the art of writing proved an unmixed blessing, end quote. Though our more avid listeners will recall that we here at the podcast believe things would be better when the peasants didn't know how to read, it is important to point out that the base assumption of our current society is that, of course, writing is an unmixed blessing. However, Weaver harkens back to Plato, noting that he believed philosophy was best conducted as a dialogue, not as a treatise. For him and Socrates, writing will only propagate false knowledge and encourage forgetfulness. Weaver rightly notes that both Plato and he himself are criticizing writing via their own writing, but it's quick to rejoinder that this is simply to call attention to the limitations of writing, and that at least writing is neither necessary nor sufficient for a good society. Unlike Plato, who presented truth as a living thing impossible to lock within the written word, modern society opposite. The more insistent a newspaper is, the more it is believed to be fact. Regarding journalists as the more modern moral equivalent of the ancient orals, he quotes Phaedrus, quote, They will appear to be omniscient and will generally know nothing. They will be tiresome, having the reputation of knowledge without the reality, end quote. Note well that, for all the talk of dialogue, conversation, etc., newspapers are not about an exchange of, of views, but rather about the absorption of their own ideas that they are propagating. After all, if Plato is indeed correct, if truth is approached through dialogue, how confident should we be how confident should we be that it can be mass disseminated via a newspaper or other means? It is a tired observation now, but it bears some examination that the news, and for the blessedly blind to the future weaver, this means only newspapers, is under pressure to distort what they are reporting in order to seize attention. Drama is what people want, and therefore, quote, journalism on the whole is glad to see a quarrel start and sorry to see it end, end quote. He already briefly discussed the profane and vulgar in the pre previous chapters, so we won't go much into it, other than to say that this is a sort of distortion of reality that continues engagement with the Stereopticon, presenting a feedback cycle of propaganda. Here, we could also go down a whole rabbit hole of Jacques Ellul's propaganda, and indeed, perhaps we will. Uh, if the press is such an agent of social ill, we should not be surprised that various organizations, government included, have become more reluctant to give access to news concerning themselves. The rise of the PR officer is a direct consequence of this. 
Of course, this is just another form of journalism slash news. Just one brewed in-house and directed outward versus an uncontrolled freeform news. I.e. it is propaganda for the various businesses and public entities. And here we could also go into a whole sidebar containing Lewis propaganda and postman's amusing ourselves to death. But perhaps that will wait for another time, as we must examine the motion picture and the radio, which, incidentally, Elul also does go over. Uh, remembering that Weaver was writing during the time of the Hayes Code censorship, which banned films for inappropriate content such as profanity, inappropriate sexual display, which is pretty much any sexual display, violence, and the like, uh, we, he, he still contends that this code misses the point entirely. Quote, the thing that needs to be censored is not the length of the kisses, but the egotistic, selfish, and self-flaunting hero. Not the relative proportion of undraped breasts, but the flippant, vacuous-minded, and also egotistic heroine. Let's not worry about the jokes of dubious propriety. Let us rather object to the whole story with its complacent assert assertion of the virtues of materialist society. End quote. Uh, cinema slides to the lowest common denominator, that which attracts the most people into the theater. Nota bene, Weaver died before The Fast and Furious came out, blessed man that he was, but still saw this coming. Uh, the final apparatus he turns to is radio and television. These are more pernicious, more sinister, as they are more invasive into the life of the individual. Indeed, a newspaper may be skimmed or put down, the movie may be avoided, quote, but the radio is insistently present. Indeed, the victims of this publicity are virtually hunted down. In few public places do we escape it, and our neighbor's loudspeaker may penetrate the very sanctum of our privacy, end quote. Here, I'll lament the few restaurants, bars, and in general public gathering places will be found without an array of blaring televisions showing everything from sports to news. And the juxtaposition of the content of this radio and TV is absurd. Again, imagine, take a step back and, and think of sports and news being mishmashed. And Weaver brings to mind the absurd juxtaposition that it was brought via the World War II era. <clears throat> uh, excuse me. Uh, quote, during the recent war, what person of feeling was not struck by the insanity of hearing advertisements for laxatives between announcements of the destruction of famous cities by aerial bombardment? End quote. He also discusses the absurdity of pre-canned applause, laughter, and the like, which he claims is designed, quote, to tell listeners when to react and how, and so further submerses them, submerges them into massness, end quote. Weaver grows even more grim. Quote, here, it would seem, is the apotheosis. Here is the final collapse of values, a fantasia of events, suggesting in its wild discord the debris left by a storm. Here is the daily mechanic, mechanical wrecking of hierarchy, end quote. For Weaver, the, announcement and the announcer and commentator of the news only makes things worse, rendering even horror mundane. Quote, recall the war years once more. Who has not heard the news of some terrible tragedy, which might stagger the imagination and cause the conscientious artist to hesitate at the thought of its depiction, given to the world in the same tone that commends a brand of soap or predicts fair weather for the morrow? These were commentator there were commentators, it is true, who got the spirit of gravity into their speech, but behind them stood always the announcer, denying by its formula a of denying by his formula of regular inflection the poignancy of their message. The radio, more than press or screen, is the cheerful liar. End quote. In the hollow figures of the announcer and commentator, Weaver perceives the dread metaphysical narrative of progress, that things will always get better despite all evidence to the contrary. Note also that, similar to the newspaper, the radio is inherently anti-participatory. In some ways, it is even more. When reading, one is at least cognizant of the idea that one is not talking back to a book. But in hearing a voice speak, it is easy to forget that this is not a dialogue, but a monologue. It is not a conversation, but a speech. Finally, we turn to the effects of this grand behemoth, the great stereopticon. Specific temptations to suppress and distort aside, Weaver does briefly contemplate that, 
For all our disunity, might not this be the godsend that we need to unite? However, the data shows otherwise. Perhaps it is a function of the Stereopticon's toolset themselves. Uh, Postman would concur with television and dissent with newspaper. Or perhaps it is a function of the operators. Perhaps it is both. Whatever the case, the machine impacts all parties involved. Quote, the operators of the Stereopticon, by their very selection of matter, make horrifying assumptions about reality. For its audience, that overarching dome becomes a sort of miasmic cloud, a breeder of strife and degradation and of the subhuman. What person taking the affirmative view of life can deny that the world it served up daily by press, movie, and radio is a world of evil and negation? There is iron in our nature sufficient to withstand any fact that is present in a context of affirmation, but we cannot remain unaffected by the continued assertion of cynicism and brutality. Yet these are what the materialists in control of publicity give us, end quote. Weaver partially blames, blames profit chasing and capitalism, but is quick to point out that it is not just the cynics selling out truth for profit, but also the idealists who have bought the myth of progress, convinced things will continually be improving the faster they depart from where they are. There is a brief discussion of the disdain and fear the Stereopticon and its operators have on the philosopher. Socrates, the gadfly, strikes again, quote, Society does not mind an individual's being wise. Only when he begins to make others wise does it, be, does it become apprehensive, end quote. He ends on a tentatively hopeful note, though. Evidently, there are some signs of resistance. People have gotten jaded to propaganda ever since the First World War. Additionally, poets have become begun attempting to resuscitate the cliched in ling language, as McGilchrist pointed out was their primary job. Weaver brings hope that this may be the time for a whole new kind of writer. He puts hope in them being the modern protagonist in Plato's narrative of the cave, come to break us out of the shadows cast by the stereopticon and take us into the light. After all, he concludes, quote, what humane spirit after reading a newspaper or attending a popular motion picture or listening to the Farago of nonsense on a radio program has not found relief in fixing his gaze upon some characteristic bit of nature is escape from the sickly metaphysical dream, end quote. And that's chapter five. That it is. Although, Stephen, I was following along as you were um, doing the uh, uh, one of your quotes and you left off what I thought was like the coolest quote of the whole chapter, which is, you know, um, uh, thus the broadcast of chaos comes in a curious monotone. This is the voice of the hollow men who can see the toppling walls of Jerusalem, Athens, and Rome without enough soul to sense tragedy. Ah, that is an excellent quote. I, I tried to at least include the idea of hollowness. Uh, I didn't want to steal too many quotes, but you are right, and I'm glad that you brought that back in. The one that, other that, quote... Oh, go, go for it. Sam. No, that quote made me think of a, a, a conversation I had with some acquaintances a few weeks ago, and it was when when the United States was leaving Afghanistan. And these were all a pretty, a pretty Trumpy brand of conservative people. And they were, I mean, they were talking about tragedy, and like the deaths of American soldiers, and the amount of people stuck there and the human rights abuses and the Taliban and ISIS. And you couldn't tell it from their tone, because it was a tone of complete glee. And it was I was actually I was very disturbed, because it was basically because at the end of everything, it was just Biden screwed up. And that was the only thing that it was all it was all just like glee without any kind of semblance of what was actually happening. So yeah, that's it, what that it all remains just so abstract and it just becomes kind of points to throw at the other side. Which yep. when we get to Alul, he'll he'll go into that a lot more on um mm -hmm. especially Weaver. I actually wonder if Weaver and Alul were in some sort of dialogue because I mean this is a lot of what he says of this is this is pretty much them training us in order to get a response. Without us thinking, without us planning, without us doing anything, we hear the story, ha, Biden screwed up, and we're just willing to kind of take whatever that that works and, and spit it back out. Or, ha, Trump screwed up, and therefore, yeah. 
obviously both sides of the media play it. It's not, it's not an exclusive right oh, or left thing, yeah. but it was just, it's just, it was just such a, uh, a, a strong example of that just automatic. Ah, that's how I should feel about it. Right. Yeah. And I, and I do think the, the part that struck me as you were summarizing the chapter, Stephen was just talking about the radio as a pernicious effect or having a pernicious effect because of its announcer quality, because of its monotone, all these things. And it, it strikes me that podcasting is sort is quite similar. I, I, I mean, for me, like a lot of the podcasts I listen to are news and updates. So, you know, I'm buried in the stereopticon as, as it were, but you know, the BBC world service, I listen to that first thing in the morning and I hear about, you know, tsunamis and coups and whatever, you know, said in that all very calming British tone, every single day. So no, yeah, I, I think it's an interesting puzzle to try and unwrap because it would seem that some kind of some measure of responsibility would demand that we, you know, are informed of things in as much as we can be that we're actors in the world that have information if it's offered to us. But at the same time, is that really true? Or is that just sort of the, um, I mean, it would say that's the programming that uh, makes us controllable. But two, two thoughts. Uh, the first, there's an anecdote that his biography on Bonhoeffer and apparently I want to say it was when the first world war was entering and the Bonhoeffer children come to their parents um, you know back to their house after school I believe it was his little sister who in essence said to her parents hallelujah there's a war you know all up on wartime propaganda and they slapped her um and I mean it was how dare you men are going to die over this so many people are going to die how dare you say hallelujah over that um and I think that sort of realism of kind of taking yourself out of the propaganda and realizing, ha, Biden screwed up. And now how are, how many people are going to suffer for this tragedy? We shouldn't be gleeful at this at all. We should be lamenting. Mm. Not sure what uh, we've cut, but there may have been some, some guests there. But anyway, but now on to the actual thing that we all want to talk about, which is uh, good old, good old Rich Weaver's awful take on jazz. Uh, so Sam, you you are a a, a music man. Um, I think you play uh, instruments of of song and, and dance. Uh, so uh, do so, do tell us why Richard Weaver is horribly wrong. What's an instrument of dance, incidentally? A drum, probably. Um, probably drums. I don't play drums though. A fiddle. A know. fiddle is an instrument of dance. Yeah, I, yeah, I yeah, a fiddle. More than more than song. His error seemed to be that he he was alternating too quickly between art and music, and like the mm -hmm. movements were similar but not necessarily concurrent. And so he's like, "Look, art was fragmented and trying to break all of its bonds. Also, jazz was doing the same thing, which is bad because it's chaotic, which means that art is chaotic and it doesn't necessarily follow like that." Anyway, that's all. I agree. I'll probably that. go. I'll probably go very like narrative on him. Gotcha. Well, I mean, I also just want to know, like, do you have an, an instinct when when he says that music goes from being architectural to thematic to textural? Yeah, well, last so my my main thing there is that he he was okay. He has this one bit that irked me so much is on page 78. He said that in, uh, at the bottom of the page, he says, quote, instead of that strictness of form, which had made the musician like the celebrant of a ceremony, we now have individualization and just just no. And maybe it was my specific teacher or the school that I studied in um, for classical piano. But we were very much it was very much drilled into us. No, you are 
interpreting this. You're engaging in this longtime tradition. And so, yeah, I'm playing Bach and I'm going to play Bach perfectly because it would be terrible to play it anything less than perfectly. But I'm not treating it like I'm just doing it exactly the same. Every player is going to play it slightly differently. And those little nuances between the notes are what it, it does bring individualization to it. But I think of it more as leaning into a larger tradition. There's a tradition of performing these pieces and of giving your take on that piece. That's part of the art form. So no, I think his assessment of classical music like Mozart and Bach being strictly architectural and mechanical and and true, it, it, it moving into improvisation and individualization is just wrong. There's, there's a lot more gray area in there. Um, and then he has a bit about how non-technical and chaotic jazz is when I'd say jazz is extremely technical um, and ordered, by the way. If anything, you'd expect that his mechanistic view on, th- or like him wanting to make music mechanistic or more algorithmic or, or structural, that, that strikes me as him not really getting what music is. Um, and I, exactly. I do understand that his project is right now is saying that everything is becoming disintegrated. Everything is becoming individualistic. And I, I think to be fair, I think that jazz being an indicator of this, that's, that's excellent. Jazz being an indicator of this, it does stand for evidence, um, that things, including art are becoming very individualistic. I just don't think it follows that. Therefore jazz is bad. Um, if anything, McGill, Chris, I recall him saying that like jazz is one of the few things that America can kind of hold its head high and say, we added to the canon. No, Richard, you know, I'm liking this so far and this entire, like his whole bit on music, like really caused me to pause and reassess this entire theory. But I think my opinion on it is that McGill Chris does redeem this section um, and and help kind of recontextualize what's going on. And it's just that Weaver is, is misinterpreting what people are getting at in these art forms. And, and, and I'm not just dumping credentials on this, but I have studied piano, I studied classical piano for about 10 years and then switched over to jazz piano for three, earned a minor degree in school in music. So I, I, I've studied a lot of music and his assessment's just very, very, very bad. He also, so to put a Maceterian take on this, jazz definitely does tell stories. Now, granted, it doesn't necessarily tell stories about how to live ethically or what, what are ethics. So maybe there it doesn't quite hit the, the standard of being a good narrative medium, but it is a, an art form where the different participants are able to engage in conversation and in narrative with one another, building up a very strong community. Um, Weaver's not talking about that at all. He basically just says it's for all the the base, and I don't even want to get into all the connotations of that. However, um, I would say that I think the Gilchrist interpretation of jazz and impressionism does redeem this. Gilchrist talks about how jazz, um, and more impressionism, but also a little bit of jazz, uh, well, sorry, no. Miller talks about impressionism primarily. Impressionism as indicating an acute awareness of objective reality viewed through a subjective lens. So it's the take that is seen by the overall right hemisphere, and then we are re- reprocessing that, representing that, and uh, showing it through these colors. And and from that lens, I would say that impressionism is not at all a rejection of form or rejection of reality. It's merely a better articulation of our position in relation to it. And Weaver doesn't really discuss this. I would be very interested to hear him get into the objective-subjective divide and where people, as inherent subjects, fit into trying to point at the objective. Um, Because I don't think he's really... I mean, 
he's obviously said that the progressives are way off on that and that they are far too subjective. But I would be curious to hear what he'd say about whether or not we actually are subjects. If we take McGillicris' point that we are subjects, we are viewing an objective reality, then I think these two art forms are perfectly acceptable and are, are even good at broadening our understanding of art and of beauty. Also, last point, and then I'll stop this rant, is um, he's writing in 1948. Like the jazz at this time was very restrained. Like we're not even at Sinatra. We're like at, it's like, it's very, very restrained swing music. Like I was thinking, you know, maybe some of the the crazier like jazz of the 70s and 80s, maybe that could be seen as chaotic and it's pretty dissonant. Um, But we haven't even hit Miles Davis yet, who was controversial for like his dissonance and his intentionally um, intentional distortions of technique in order to create his textures. We haven't even gotten there. It's like this is very, very formulaic music. It's it, it's and, and he's complaining about it. So I don't know. He's wrong. Well, I already shot myself in the foot once, so I mean, I may as well do it again. I'll try to offer a sort of apology uh, as somebody who really enjoyed playing jazz music, and as one who likes jazz, and as somebody who loves swing dancing in particular. I'll still try. So I I do understand the idea of I, I disagree with him in that jazz has no narrative to it. Obviously, it has a narrative. I mean, it, it takes its basis in correct me if I'm wrong. Old African uh, American spirituals or old slave spirituals. Um, slave spirituals. Yes. Yeah. So is, I, mean, I, is, I didn't want to get into that, but that's a whole connotation yeah, here, we, that it was slave spirituals through the church, through folk songs in the South that well, created blues, which is the basis for jazz. So there's a full narrative history there that he's just kind of ignoring, which is distasteful at best, and we won't go into the weaver. Um, but I do understand his main point in that jazz jazz is inherently more individualistic than, say, um, an orchestra. Because it, d- it does, it emphasizes the solo, it emphasizes the riff, it em- emphasizes going off the, off the page, it em- emphasizes um, improvisation, which does inherently emphasize the individual. And so I can see him saying, hey, look, where music was once a communal activity of the orchestra getting together and reading from the same piece of music and all trying to come together to create harmony, this is too much about, um, well, this is disintegrating the the whole piece into individual parts where you have a loose coalition of a band that kind of will seize the narrative or seize the piece of music one after the other after the other. So while I don't agree with him that jazz has no narrative, I don't agree with him that jazz is also therefore inherently bad. I'm at least somewhat sympathetic with the idea that there does seem to be something disintegrating about uh, the the jazz, especially a la the solo. Although, nota bene, I mean, solos have not, that that wasn't a new thing in jazz. Yeah, the, response, like, the response to that is the concerto existed, which, yeah. It, it, it's the symphony with a soloist and it's very much i mean yeah it's the it's the composers usually their greatest works but it, it when performed there's a huge emphasis on the soloist because it usually requires an immense technical and moreover an emotional connection to the music in order to perform that properly because your interpretation matters yeah you're right that that's about the best apologetic i can give but i think at the end of the day we're all kind of coming down saying no, interesting point, maybe, but you're just wrong on this. Yeah, I'll I'll offer a minor uh, apology for it as well, which would just be to say that his concern seems 
very much to be about things that bring us back to what he's called the unifying dream. So anything that is less than calling everyone together to realize the same mythology again and, and our proper relationship to each other is bad. So that's why the big pieces of music that, you know, hundreds of people listen to and all experience together and more or less maybe even knowing the movements in many ways is the kind of music that he seems to approve of because it has that unifying effect. Jazz seems to very much not have that as a, in practical terms of how the musicians are are acting. So in his context, I think that's why he would view it as a force for dissolution. Uh, but all that, that said, everything that we've said is also correct in that, you know, his comment comes before much, much of the development of jazz. Uh, his, you know, he's not exactly doing that much analysis of musical theory either. He's probably just looking around and saying people that I don't like at this time are playing jazz, therefore jazz bad. Kids these days and their loud music. Exactly. Exactly. The other thing, though, that sort of struck me as an extension of this is, I think, a larger critique of Weaver that maybe will come up later, we'll see, is that he seems very concerned with the with this unifying dream on a theoretical level, almost. I don't see in him anything for the practical or the communal, like the, the intermediary level of how does this work out in daily life seems to be sort of missing. And the thing that really brought that to mind is swing. Uh, I, I, I like swing music. I like swing dancing. It's been said that dancing is one of dancing with friends and the loss of that in our culture is one of the greatest losses that we've had because it, it's, it's such a way to all experience life together in a very beautiful way. And swing dancing is a way of doing that. And it's, uh, you know, it's one of the, it's a form of dancing to music where it's personal and not anonymous. Uh, you know, club music is, is not the same thing as swing dancing. You're, you're not there to be with other people. You know, you're there to put your head down and rock out to Dua Lipa or whatever. I think he's sort of inhuman in a way. He sort of reminds me of like the ideals of GK Chesterton, but he lacks the humor and the down to earthedness that allows him to say like, here are the metaphysical walls that we must build that are tall and inhuman and intimidating but behind that, we shall have our peasant festival. And it, it seems that he's that Weaver is just about the wall, not about the festival. I think that actually is a pretty good criticism, especially for this particular piece in that I can't, the, the question of where's the mirth? Where's it, is he so unfeeling that he can't listen to a piece of jazz and think, my goodness, this is actually like, sure, let's even let's even be charitable and say, like, maybe he doesn't find it beautiful. I think a lot of jazz is really beautiful, but. I also guess it's a different beauty than classical music. It's a different style. It's a different aesthetic. So it's not his feel or it's it's not his vibe. Fair enough. But he strikes me like as a stodgy old guy that listens to the jazz music and like has this big frown on his face, but like his foot is silently tapping along. Like, is that not happening, Weaver? Do you not see any sort of joy in this or any sort of benefit that comes from this? Uh, so yeah, I think that's actually a pretty decent critique. Well, as Brevin said, everything we have said here is correct. Well, we're always correct, so I mean that helps. Except when we make predictions about COVID, we weren't correct then. I wasn't correct. Yes, then. you weren't correct. Indeed, and because everything that we have said is correct, it would be pretty cool if someone wrote it all down. Uh, but as Weaver noted in this chapter, and as he noted that Plato noted, and philosophers have been asking from time immemorial, is writing truly an unmixed blessing? And I think the answer is. No, it's not an unmixed blessing. There's obviously the problem with people learning how to read, but there's also the manner of reading that 
makes quite a difference. And Sam, I think your article actually had something to say about that. My article does. I I discovered this article on while sitting on the subway, perusing through my Atlantic um, app on my phone, um, going to church this morning. Uh, the article is called "Ebooks Are an Abomination," which is a catchy headline, and I thought I'd check it out. I don't really have much of an opinion on ebooks. When I was lit, like in middle school, I read a bunch of young adult fiction, all of Harry Potter and the Hunger Games and stuff on my dad's nook. And I liked it well enough, but I've since gravitated towards primarily physical books, and I like to collect books. So I thought this was an interesting article, and um, so I'd read it. The article actually was not as scathing as I expected it to be. It basically goes through the history of e-readers. The author has this personal distaste for them. And then he sits down with a, um, a technology writer and longtime bookmaker to discuss what actually is a book and what do ebooks do to that. And I thought it was a very interesting exploration, kind of a meta problem with reading of what is a book and what does it mean to read. And so I thought that this would, if not, it's a pretty casual article, very easy to read, very lighthearted. But I thought it would, I thought our listeners would enjoy it. And I thought that you guys would enjoy talking about it. Um, the author des- de- uh, defines bookiness or basically he, him and his friend conclude that bookiness uh, has a few characteristics. And I'm just going to read this paragraph because it defines it so well. Um, quote, a book we decided is probably composed of bound pages rather than loose ones. Those pages are probably made from paper or leaves akin to paper. Those pages are likely numerous and the collection of pages is coherent, forming a totality. The order of that totality matters but also the form of bound pages allows a reader to random access any page via flipping and fanning. Books have spreads made of the left and right sides. You can look at both at once and open the book, and an open book has a topography of a valley, creating a space that you can go inside and be surrounded by, literally and figuratively. Some books are very large, but the ordinary sort is portable and probably handheld. Uh, that held object probably has a cover made of a different material from the leaves that compose the, its pages. A stapled report probably isn't a book. A coil-bound one with plastic covers might be. A greeting card is probably not a book. Neither is a staple-bound manual that came with your air fryer. Are magazines and brochures books? They might be, if we didn't have special terms for the kind of books that they are. So, end quote. That's his definition of book. And he goes through the history of books and ancient Rome and papyrus and codexes and all this stuff. But then he looks at ebooks and finds them lacking in many of the qualities of a book. You can't random access it. You can't go inside of it. There's no left and right hand pages at once. First of all, it's not, not bound pages. So it's left all to its words. But he still finds that they do have purpose. And he, he when looking at what books are top sellers on, e, on e-readers, he finds that mostly fiction, specifically genre fiction, mystery, romance, horror, those sorts of books are very popular in e-readers and, and sell rather well, sometimes even better than they sell in person, while nonfiction is almost entirely still, still dominated by physical books. Um, he realizes that it's because fiction, the, the relevant pieces for fiction are that the words are conveyed in the correct order. That's basically all that is necessary in order for you to to absorb a piece of fiction. And so that works very well to transfer to the e-reader format, while nonfiction cannot. You, you, you need to be able to flip through it and reference back. There are pictures sometimes and diagrams. There are appendixes, reference pages. He um, likes art and architecture books, which are terrible on e-readers. So therefore, is, is relegated to um, physical books. So his end conclusion is that not necessarily what the title says, that um, ebooks are abomination, but merely that 
they are restricted and will really never break into the market of um, physical books. It will never take down the market of physical books for nonfiction until they create some new innovation. I thought it was a fun little article. I love his exploration of what makes up a book. And I'm curious what you guys think about, like, how do you read? What's your preference in terms of books? Um, what are your problems with reading physically? Very meta. Uh, yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed the article. I thought it was well done. Um, it is interesting. Uh, so Postman in Amusing Ourselves to Death does go into this whole idea of the, the medium is a metaphor. Um, and so the way a, um, a message is sent changes the way you read the message and therefore changes the message itself. And so I think I, I would say that the um, the e-reader is still closer to the book than, for example, the film is to the book because it's still presenting words rather than uh, pictures in a similar way that I think uh, the article online is going to be similar to the article in a journal. It's not entirely the same. The medium does change the message, but it, do it changes it significantly less than, for example, if it were to be an audio book, for example, um, or a uh, or a film or, or what have you. So I, I really appreciated him uh, kind of just toying with that idea a bit. It is interesting. Uh, one thing that came to mind was that there are some books that uh, I think in some cases are intentionally designed to be impossible to convert to e-reader or even audiobook. Uh, one such example is House of Leaves um, by uh, Mark Danieluski. I think he intentionally designed it such that it is impossible uh, to uh, to convert to e-reader. You just can't do it. Um, there's the, the pages are too weird. Uh, the, the content is just too difficult to convert. Difficult to, to explain how, but I at least sort of understand. Um, and then another one is uh, Infinite Jest, um, made very difficult to convert to e-reader especially. And the audiobook version, they just straight up leave a tenth of it out um, via the, the foot or the end notes because they just said, it's too difficult, it's too confusing, it's going to just subtract from the story. You're just going to have to kind of deal with the fact that we leave this out. Um, Though uh, Robert Petkoff does a great job with uh, some of his shorter essays that um, uh, that still have footnotes and whatnot, he actually does a pretty decent job at keeping track of all that. But I mean, the medium changes things, um, and so I I guess I for one prefer the actual physical copy because in a lot of cases that's how the author intended it. That's fascinating. I didn't know about the like intentional sabotaging. That's that's awesome. Um, right. I think the oh one fact that I expected to see here that I didn't um, unless I missed it which is that the path dependence and historical accident of the hardbound volume that we have which is mm. just because of the vellum pages and you needed a way to press them down basically because they would start to crinkle up unless there was pressure put on them so that's what the heavy bound hardbacks were and then that's just continued onto paper for no reason other than the tradition of that's how books used to be which is a fun fact yeah, I, I guess I, I should have talked about that part. I guess I felt like my story was getting long, but he does have this whole set bit, bit on the construction of books. And he's like, look, he, he, um, I mean, I was on the subway, so I didn't have one. He's like, literally grab a hardback book off your shelf and look at it. Like there's a little striped fabric at the top. That's not necessary. Pages are still glued in there, but we have that, which is what would have been, it, it, it looks exactly like the, um, the thread that was used to sew pages in. And we still have that in the book because to not have it, it looks weird. You'll look at it and it looks strange. Or if you open up any book, you have two title pages and it will look strange if you don't have that, even though it's wholly unnecessary. That was for transferring the book to a to a binder in case some some bit got lost or to keep it protected, all that. I just I thought that was so fascinating. Um and um oh the um the chapter and and book header. He's like, why do we need to be reminded of the book that you're reading over and over again? 
well, it's how it's always been. And in the past, you would have lied. If you lost a page, you could just slip it in there and you know, look, it goes to. But now it would look very strange if you didn't have that. And so he reapplies this to like self-publishing books. He has nothing against self-publishers. He's like, the challenge is that a self-publisher, the books, however good the book could be, it could be an amazing book, but it oftentimes comes out looking like a Word document bound up in a book. It doesn't have these key pieces that make up a, a book. And so it doesn't get taken seriously. And it may not get taken seriously because somebody picks it up and it feels fake. But it feels fake because they didn't have the second title page in there. You know, that's fat, that no, kind that, of thing. Yeah, that's a great, that's excellent. And, yeah. and so his, his assessment there is that like the e-readers, a lot of people would, you know, take that as a snob of say self-publisher is terrible. He's like, well, no, it's just that you can publish, you can push things to an e-reader so fast, you never have to think about these things. And it's it's really hurting these writers' legitimacy uh, rather than helping. That's a lot of what I took away from this article and talking about the medium as the message in just the impermanence of text on screens. And especially, you know, every other day, there's some sort of a scandal where, you know, a major media organization will stealth edit uh, an article or something with, you know... <laughs> sometimes with proper attribution, sometimes without it, and just how different that is from the world of books and how, yeah, there's there's a, a, a committedness to books that is just so not there with e-readers, with screens, and even with film. I mean, you, you know, scarily, like uh, what Amazon editing out scenes of, um, of Avatar, the, you know, Avatar of the Blue Aliens, editing mm -hmm. scenes out. So if you own the movie on Amazon, it's, it's fundamentally different. And you could even sort of see a path there with from which scenes did they edit out uh the weird sex one but <laughs> that, that's probably okay it's 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 more the it, it, it's the idea of the thing that's important not the specific instance anyway i i will leave it there well but blade runner would be a classic example of that phenomenon where there was mm -hmm. what like seven different editions all of which were fairly significantly different because they're all different cuts uh also well, that, that was first of all i admit i've never seen any any Blade Runner, which I'm so I, I should see it, but also wasn't that mostly like disputes between Ridley Scott and the producer um, and the studio? I'm actually not sure what the origin of those uh, different cuts were. I just know that there were many. Hmm. Yeah, I mean to like fully make up a whole different version of the movie just because you had a disagreement with someone, like you'd have to be pretty mad. And when one is mad, one rants. Sam, what do you got? Um, well, some people have said that. Sports are the modern religion that we find our meaning via these sports teams that we follow, and we go to these temples that are the stadiums to cheer on our um, war spiritual warriors and conquest. However, um, I have a little bit more optimistic take, as I'd say it's just a good old fun, and it's just sometimes nice to put on the ball game on a nice Sunday afternoon. Except you can't nowadays because <laughs> corporate the NFL. <laughs> I spent so long today trying to get this game on and going to so many different illegal streaming sites and trying out so many different trials to get access to watch my dear Seattle Seahawks in Brooklyn, New York, because I don't want to become a Giants fan. And um, it was terrible. I mean, I'm just I'm just shocked by how much it actually costs to do this. Um, I'm shocked by how bad the Seahawks played. And then after all that. <laughs> I had to watch that game, and I, used my one free, and I used my one free trial on that game. <laughs> uh, no. Uh. So basically, it's been a terrible afternoon. <sighs> yes, that is, oh boy, that is indeed a tragedy. For my rant, very short, I got a small 
relatively portable hydroponic garden grower from my lovely wife meant to grow, you know, indoor flower gardens or herb gardens. And I also got a collection of 14 herbs and I am a gardener now and I have the little sprouts are shooting up. The little uh, lid covers are off. We'll have some some fresh basil, rosemary, some mint. It's going to be a good time and I'm very excited and I had to resist the urge as soon as I got it set up and put the seeds on there to like go out and just buy like a bunch of buckets just to like dump soil in and just like start growing stuff in all corners of the room. But growing things is good. And as we know from numerous writers, uh, Kolakowski having the most amusing expression of this, but uh, you know, it, uh, the, the correct thing to do is to tend one's own garden. So for my rant, I exhort everyone to tend your own garden, uh, even if it's a tiny one in your apartment. Two things. First, I do hope you save some mint for uh, uh, Walker Percy's. And second, uh, Falling Up's On Growing Things is uh, a beautiful song and would recommend. And then for my... Oh, oh. yes. And then for my rant. Um, so yesterday I was, uh, you know, sitting on the toilet. And as one sits on the toilet, one often uh, takes out one's iPhone and starts perusing through emails, which in the words of Olin Rogers is called multitasking. And so I saw that my professor had sent me back an email uh, with my uh, homework. And uh, I opened the, uh, the attachment uh, to see any feedback. And I noticed, much to my amusement, that uh, the Word document, when you open it up in an iPhone, you see all the text just fine, but it leaves out all of the equations you use in the equation editor. And the result is something phenomenal. And so, for my rant, I will be giving you Stephen's home math homework without the math. <clears throat> Problem one. Find such that with constraints and BCs of... First, we must modify the constraint. We don't really need the constant as its derivative is zero, but for thoroughness, we'll rearrange the original con constraint interval. Let and so plugging into the Euler equation yields, given the boundary conditions, we know the following. Note, another way of writing this is, this only has the trivial solution of, however, if this flips us from hyperbolic to regular trigonometric functions, letting we get this has infinite non-trivial solutions and the trivial solution of, we know, going back to our solution, or, thus, graphing this shows that the area increases as it decreases. So we want the highest non-zero, which is, as we can see, is by far the minimizer. I, I just find this beautiful. <laughs> Steven, you're a poet. You know, what, you know, what you don't know is that that's how, like, if I was to read it and it had all the equations in there, that's how it would sound in my head. <laughs> No, that's that's 100% accurate, yes. <laughs> There's just something so rhythmic about it. Oh, it's lovely. I especially liked seeing your little rhetorical flourishes in, in there. You know, things that are just like, you know, just little bits of Steven showing up in between the <laughs> equations. That was excellent. Well played. Glad you appreciate it. Uh, audience uh he's been excited about this for multiple days as, as, as soon as he <laughs> discovered this he texted us and was like guys i found my rant you're gonna love it i was very pumped uh well played indeed well gentlemen it is late here on the uh east coast so uh for everyone here at the problem with reading podcast i'm brevin i'm steven I'm and uh go listen to jazz because it's it, it's good all growing things We didn't wait, we didn't do his we we didn't do his bit about about um eating weeds. Oh yeah, that weaver is totally not oh, a weaver. Oh we missed that. Yeah.
Yeah, Stephen, do you have that? Oh, yeah, hang on. What was the quote? Yeah, just pull up the one quote. Yes. Yeah, uh, so the, the, the quote, um, it has been said that tragedy is for aristocrats, comedy is for the bourgeois, and farce is for peasants. What percentage of the output of motion picture factories can qualify as tragedy? And with the animated cartoon, a growing percentage qualifies as farce. Leaving clear evidence that, unlike McGilchrist, Weaver was not a weaver.